What's up, everybody? Just a little preamble before we get today's episode started. Today's guest is Alex Salmon. He is from the American Prospect. We're going to be talking about some of the inside baseball, some of the intra-left party battles that are underway right now between elements like the squad, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and Pelosi and other more right-wing elements inside the Democratic Party. This has been a kind of a progressive politics extravaganza from DPS ever since the election in November. I'm really trying to unpack and untie and unwound and understand and all the rest of it uh, what has happened inside the party. I've been talking about an inside-outside strategy with respect to the Democrats inside the state, outside the state in a much more broader sense since this podcast launched almost four years ago. So don't, don't, don't freak out people. Don't panic. Okay. The dead pundit has not gone lib. Uh, he hasn't even gone progressive. Uh, this is still a democratic socialist podcast. It's just that I want to lean into some of these electoral democratic party machinations so that we can understand it and under, you know, and, and figure out what to do next. Uh, we've got a Biden presidency in front of us. Uh, our posture is going to be very, very different than it has been uh, going up against a Trump regime over the past four years. And so we're going to dive into this progressive electoral politicking for a little bit, certainly for this week. Um, as you all know, I'm going to be uh, running some uh, interviews and some episodes dealing with the life and legacy and the work and, uh, and, and the future trajectories of the work of Leo Panich, my mentor who passed away a couple of weeks ago. I've got some interviews lined up with Sam Gendon, uh, hopefully with Steve Marr, both recent uh, past guests of the show. We're going to be digging into uh, much more kind of heady, theoretical, explicitly socialist subjects. So, you know, uh, abide these progressive politicking episodes, and we're going to get back to the hearty good stuff of socialist theory, strategy, and practice. If you like the politics stuff and, you know, the Marxism feels like eating your vegetables, well, enjoy it. Uh, I kind of, we're going to be going back and forth. We're going to be going back and forth between the kind of crap you'd see on Politico, uh, all the way back to the kind of stuff that you'd read in, you know, I don't know, the Communist Manifesto. So enjoy this um, heterodox buffet that is Dead Pundit Society going into 2021. We have another episode coming up with uh, veteran of the show, Eric Levitz. He's going to be talking a little bit more about the Force the Vote campaign and one of the articles that he wrote about it. And as promised, I'm also going to be having a more adversarial voice on the show for a new segment I'm calling uh, Point Counterpoint or PCP. We're going to get all high on PCP uh, for a uh, wither force the vote argument. And uh, that's going to be coming up real soon, either uh, later this week or next week. Um, so just a little bit of a a, uh, a look ahead of what's to come. And um, yeah, contextualize some of this stuff for you guys. If you enjoy the show and you would like to see it continue, as always, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. We could not do this strange hodgepodge of like progressive electioneering politics mixed with a, a touch of like, say, Marxist socialist theory mixed with some on the ground labor activism soup this whatever it is that i'm doing uh 
making it up as I go, I couldn't do it without the support of, of our patrons. Um, you know, I, I started the show in 2016, 2017 with the promise of grounding a new left agenda and that project, it never ends folks. Uh, we're going to have to found a new left agenda for 2021 and beyond, um, in the midst and beyond uh, the Biden administration. Uh, that's, that's the four years we've got coming up in front of us. And, um, the work is, well, let's say it's, it's cut out for us. So let's do this thing. Enjoy the interview. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this new crazy mother. Welcome, everybody, to today's episode of Dead Planet Society. I am your host, as always, Adam Proctor, and we are broadcasting on Christmas week. I hope everybody is staying safe. And, you know, Christmas is canceled this year. I don't know if you guys got the news. The Libs canceled Christmas. <laughs> uh, but we're, we're going to give you some good content here this week, I think, to listen to as you're crying into your mug of eggnog or whatever be the case. Joining me on the program today is a staff writer from the American Prospect, Alex Salmon. He has written a really interesting and I think important piece that entails some really interesting and important reporting about the intra-party drama that's unfolding inside the Democratic Party that uh, we have been tracking here at Dead Planet Society. And I think it's really important. We're going to talk all about that. Alex, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So let's zoom out a little bit. We're going to be talking about how the establishment struck back as the title of your recent piece in The Prospect proclaims, in essence, punishing progressives and specifically AOC, punishing progressives for daring to go against the mainstream, but there's a lot of hypocrisy there that we want to unpack and we want to talk about the strategies on, on both sides. But before we do that, let's zoom out and let's go back all the way back to the general election in November. What is your take on those results? I've asked everybody who's come on the show nearly uh, since since to give me their perspective, you know, the, the winners, the losers, the whys, what went wrong, what went right. And uh, what we're likely to see in the coming two to four years based on those results. What's your what's your kind of broad take on all of this? Well, I think I mean, the first thing for me is, is I think it was almost the, the least satisfying result you could possibly imagine in the sense that, you know, if 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 Trump had won again, we would be saying, all right, well, that, that's a very clear, you know, we're headed in a very clear direction here that that's a referendum on Trumpism. It, it triumphs and, and that's the road we're headed down. And that to me is, is a clear message. If if. If Democrats had had romped and we, you know, and, and performed like we expected expected them to do, basically, uh, then we have another very clear sort of uh, mandate that that American politics is heading in a different direction, and um, and you know, like we're 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 breaking with this trajectory of of kind of far right Republican Trumpism, whatever you want to identify it as. But what we ended up with was like this strange validation of the status quo, where we kind of have a more entrenched and maybe more broken than ever sort of political order where. You have a very sort of tepid democratic mandate that is it, you know, loses seats in the House, flips only one seat in the Senate. Um, maybe that changes in, in Georgia. We don't know. But certainly there's no clear message that, that the American public is 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 ready to go in a different direction. Uh, and so we almost have kind of kicked the can down the road in a lot of ways. And I think if you're, you know, if you're a progressive, if you're a liberal, um, that's that's pretty heartbreaking, I think, and, and discouraging. And I think the closer you kind of uh, tease out those or the more kind of you you tease out the ins and outs of those results i think there's a lot of reasons to be uh really alarmed uh if you're a democrat or, or a progressive and um insofar as how democratic party won and i think that a lot of places they won 
they, they won in the weakest way possible. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's hard to, I, I don't have one great sentence that says this, you know, or definitively doing this, but I think that we have, we have a, a, a bad situation that we have deferred even further. Uh, and we have turned up some new trends that are even more, I think, troubling. And, and, um, and so I think, you know, the next two years are going to be really important in, insofar as determining where we end up. Let's talk about some of those trends. Uh, we've had a little bit of time now. Some of the data has emerged. We've had time to analyze it, look it over. I mean, even just county by county, district by district. There are a lot of proclamations made about who did or didn't save the election for Biden. Some of those turned out to be somewhat true. Some of them were, were a little bit, uh, what I don't know, what Stephen Colbert might call more uh, truthy than true. Uh, but, uh, you know, one of those things, of course, from from one side of the spectrum, you have the Tucker Carlson saying that the Republican Party is now the, the party of the working class, which turns out to be laughably false. The vast majority of the working class, of course, if you look outside of the uh, cliched white work, quote, white working class in, in the uh, you know Rust Belt or in the more kind of rural parts of the country, if you look at the working class as it actually exists, which is a multiracial, urban, predominantly urban working class, the vast majority of them, of course, filled in the bubble for Biden, uh, Harris. Uh, so that turns out to be not so true. But there are alarming trends uh, about the Democrats, the, the Democratic Party's inability to uh, continue its strength uh, following Obama in, in, you know, in the spheres of sort of uh, the black vote, the Hispanic vote and, and other votes. Talk to us about some of those trends that are emerging now that we've had some time to crunch the data. Yeah, that I mean, that's got to be the biggest concern going forward is and, and this is something that the Democrats have kind of told themselves for almost 30 years, you know, e- even back in the in the Bush days when it seemed like Democrats were never going to win. They were like, well, you know, the, the victories are on their way. There's this sort of Democratic or there's this demographic reality that that's inescapable that minority people in minority communities are going to vote for Democrats. They're increasingly a significant part of the, the electorate. And over time, it's, it's just this, it's this kind of glacial development, but it will, it will happen. And so, you know, that was, that was the story everyone told themselves to get through those, those years where they couldn't get a toehold anywhere in any chamber. And then finally, when we get those results in, in 2020, what happens is those people are actually in crucial areas and in, in minority groups are defecting to, to the Republican Party in numbers that we that, you know, I think strategists would have told you weren't even possible. So we thought that, you know, that Republican presidential candidates had like a, a hard cap on how many Latino voters they could or how many Latino votes they could reasonably win. And Trump broke through that that ceiling. I mean, he did, he overperformed there. He overperformed with black voters and and the turnout on the other side for Biden with those groups was really soft. And that, despite being a historic turnout election, so those are our movements. That if you're if you're a Democratic strategist or something, you know, or just someone who's interested in you know in 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 defeating the Republican Party with some consistency, those voters you can't afford to lose. Those voters Democrats have known are the future of their fate, and uh, and those people are, are jumping ship at a time when uh, you you really need them, and and that to me is extremely alarming. And you add that too to, to the way that. Democrats have managed to alienate rural voters who were a big part of the Obama coalition. And they're, you know, I mean, Obama won Iowa and Indiana and places the Democrats are never going to compete ever again, seemingly. And, and yeah, you add those add those trends together. And I think you, you, you come away feeling pretty troubled about uh, where things are headed. <laughs> 
Right. Obama seems to be a brief kind of blip aberration in between the uh, the Bush years and the Trump years, more 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 so than the kind of uh, the final enactment of demogra- demographic destiny, right? That that we were uh, proclaiming in the in the in the aughts, right. and uh, it's definitely troubling for anybody who wants to build a, a progressive. Um, you know, future in this country, despite the kind of cultural progressivism that definitely dominates in this country, there's a, a political reaction uh, that is also simmering and it's uh, very, very troubling. You know, one of the theses that I've been running with since the election, even before the election, is we are in the midst of a party realignment of some kind. And that at this point just seems undeniable. If nothing else, just to, to, to hear uh, Josh Hawley or uh, a Tucker Carlson proclaiming that the Republican Party is now the party of the, the working class is <laughs> just a, it's it's a line that uh, as Thomas Frank said on this very show last week or a couple weeks ago now that you just no one ever would ever thought uh, would come out of anyone's mouth and it's just absolutely absurd and you know having written the book uh, twenty years ago what's the matter with Kansas you know I think you'd probably have to extend that uh, question and say what the fuck is going on with the country uh, <laughs> what's your What's your take on this kind of party realignment, the things being very up in the air, the base of the traditional Democratic Party base is fracturing and uh, things just, yeah, what's hap- what the hell is going on? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that's 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 the question. That's the question we need, we need to answer. And and um, and I think I think it's, it's, it's an interesting situation where there's no doubt that Democrats won on the strength of 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 richer and whiter voters. I mean, this time around, that was really what made the difference for them. And those people historically have voted Republican. I mean, that, I mean, that was Joe Biden's strategy from the get-go. I mean, he said this openly. So that shouldn't come as any surprise to us. The, the, the idea that the Republican Party might be the, the party of the working class, obviously, is a, a, objectionable on its face. It's an insane suggestion. But at the same time, it does have, there is some sort of realignment here that I think is interesting because there are you know, rural voters and there are minority voters who are joining the fold there. And the Republican Party has no interest in, in providing for those people. I mean, at the end of the day, if this is going to be an enduring alignment between these, you know, some percentage of working class voters in the Republican Party, it's not going to last if they're not going to give them anything. And like, I, I think that that's, that's fair to assume that the Republican Party is not going to do anything for them. And so I think it's a frat. Obviously, we're still in a moment where it's fragile. None of this stuff is totally calcified. Um, but I think you should. T- I think we should take that that threat seriously, and, and I think you know to understand that uh, that Democrats need to reach out to these people. I mean, you can't just sit around and expect them to to vote reliably Democratic up and down the ticket forever and and see nothing for it. And so I, I you know, I think part of it is overstated. I think part of it's very real, um, and and I think it's it's important to take it all seriously. Right. I mean, it seems absurd on the face of it that the party of Sheldon Adelson. Uh, could also somehow be the party of the working man, <laughs> uh, but but on the fa- I mean, but let's 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 zoom out and, and look at the other end of the spectrum here. The idea that the traditional party of the working class, the Democratic Party, uh, going back to the New Deal, would be the same party uh, pushing you know uh, Prop Twenty Two in California, um, the same party pushing for the the, the crack up of the the traditional strength of of organized labor, um, you know, and. Uh, that Silicon Valley and Elon Musk on one side and, and Wall Street uh, somewhere on that side as well could could sit, you know, neatly and rationally in the same coalition as as you know uh, as as the uh, AFL CIO or other even far more militant uh, you know sectors of the trade union movement that coalesced around uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, that that in itself is is seemingly just as irrational and tenuous 
as as the thought of the Republican Party being being the base of of, of the working class. And so uh, it's hard to say exactly where where these chips will fall. Any thoughts on that before we move forward? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good that you bring that up too, because obviously the collapse of organized labor is, is a big part of this, and and. I think you see you, you see Democrats historically sowing the seeds of their own defeat all the time. I mean, I think that's true of NAFTA and of a lot of things we can go back historically and look at. But the the, the thing with Prop 22 in Silicon Valley is is I think very much the next chapter in this, where you know that's going going to cut the knees out from organized labor yet again. I mean, and that's the only institution that that reliably whips votes for Democrats. I mean, that's you know it's not like the church is doing it. It's not like what institutions can you rely on to bring in voters. It isn't just the party itself. And, and the party itself has proven to be pretty inept at that. So I, I think looking forward, that's another thing to, to you know, to put a, a lot of focus on is, is you know, the, this embrace of Silicon Valley. What does it do for the Democrats in terms of, of winning elections going forward? And, and the answer is it gives them a lot of money, but it also probably ensures that they're, it's going to be harder and harder and harder for them to win, which is, a, you know, a typical Democratic outcome in a lot of ways. No doubt. So, um, Let's move on to more topical matters here, more specific matters. Your your piece recently, uh, the establishment strikes back in the American prospect. I'll certainly link that uh, in the show notes. Details how this intra-party struggle inside the Democratic Party is playing out, and this is something that you know. Again, look, I get I get uh, I get a lot of shit for this, Alex, uh, being a, an avowed Democratic socialist. Uh, this is something that is supposed to be beneath me. Uh, it's supposed to be something that, uh, well, you know, the Democrats are going to be Democrats and the libs are going to lib and, you know, we're going to do what we're going to do and they're going to, you know, to take it. The Democratic Party is a graveyard of social movements and we should organize a third party and, you know, to hell with the Dems. You know, I come from the the school of thought that, you know, the Democratic Party at this point in time is 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 the game in town. And I think that's been evidenced by the success of Bernie Sanders inside the party, by the success of AOC and the squad and that that this intra-party struggle is, is really where the action is for the coming two to four years. And, and, and more, more than that, if we are to stave off this steady decline that we've been opening the show with, it's going to have to, we're going to have to be successful inside the party. But uh, the efforts to uh, take what's rightfully ours, I would say, right, to more uh, rationally and accurately align the party structure and the committees and so on and so forth and the forms of representation with the actual sentiment of the party base uh, has, has faced some setbacks. And your, your piece details has some really great insider reporting about exactly how that went down in the formation of these committees uh, that you see. Um, of course, we're going to talk about later in the show, the muck up between AOC and Jimmy Dore as it's being characterized, which is a, a kind of, a, a, a let's be honest, a pretty impoverished way of looking at a much more broader kind of strategic understanding of like, Pelosi's leadership, which is another thing that you've written about for the prospect I want to talk about. But before we get to those really key topics, talk to us about this reporting. How did you come across these, you know, these findings? What's really happening behind closed doors in, in these committee fights? Sure. Yeah. So I think the first thing with the committee stuff is, is that it's a real black box and it's actually uniquely opaque in the Democratic Party. The Republican Party happens to be more transparent and almost more democratic in its internal structure, which makes reporting on these things really difficult. And getting messaging out around them very difficult. But in, in the case of this particular committee fight, a couple weeks ago, there's one person who I was talking to who's in DC mentioned to me that he he was a little concerned that this fight over this this vacant seat in Energy and Commerce Committee might go sideways. And so I, I basically at that point, AOC was the only person who had raised her hand for the seat. Uh, it was a vacant seat, and she had the endorsement of 
uh, Jerry Nadler, who's the dean of the New York delegation, which is, you know, just to say that she had some institutional backing. Um, and at that point, you would assume that she would just get the seat. I mean, the Democratic Party respects hierarchy and process and all these things. And then a couple of weeks ago, uh, this woman, Kathleen Rice, who's from uh, representative from Long Island, she raised her hand and said, actually, I, I want in on this. And it was uh, not not well received. Nadler actually has historically has had a uh, has a very frosty relationship with Rice. Pelosi doesn't like Rice, and so I you know I called around and asked people what they thought, and and everyone was like, well, this is you know not a, not a concern at this point. I mean, you know, Kathleen Rice is a backbencher. She's someone that you know doesn't have a constituency. She doesn't have friends in leadership. Now, to give, give, my, give my audience some context here again. We are dusty book reading democratic socialists. We, some of us, and again, not to insult some of the others in the audience, you guys, maybe you're better than, better than me anyway, but speaking for myself, uh, give a little context about, uh, Kathleen Rice. She is on the right flank as you, as you write in your, your piece, uh, of the party, the, this, this, the, the faction inside the party that challenged Pelosi's leadership in 2018 from the right rather than from the left. Tell right. Us more about that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so yeah, this is, Kathleen Rice, yeah, in both 2016 and 2018, was opposed to Pelosi's leadership, not on the grounds that Pelosi is, you know, uh, too much a centrist, too too corporate, too willing to play ball with Republicans or any of that. She was part of the this this uh, this group of kind of breakaway right wingers in, in the in the Democratic Party that opposed Pelosi from the right, and that's really the only real pressure she's faced in the last uh, couple of terms as, as Speaker was from this group. And so, importantly, like Pelosi does not forgive and does not forget very easily. And and so like, it's, it's not even a huge, I think her, her most important trait, I think is not even ideological or, or where she lands on that, on that political spectrum. It's just that she challenged Pelosi from the right. And that's kind of where her reputation has been made. Uh, so, and other than that, you know, she's not making a, she's not a, a high profile representative. She's not making the rounds. And, um, and so, yeah, so, so, so that's Kathleen Rice. And, and then you have AOC, who's obviously, you know, a, uh, a rising star in the party. I mean, even if you're not a progressive or not a socialist, I think you would say that, you know, AOC is very much the future of this party. I mean, she's the most popular. She's certainly the, you know, most well-known and she's not in her 80s. I mean, it, it, you know, by, by default, that's, that puts her right near the top. But yeah, so, so in any case, you, because the, the, the committee is such a black box, we basically heard, I heard one morning I woke up to a bunch of texts saying there's a meeting scheduled. It was scheduled last night at 10 PM. It's going to happen this afternoon. We had no idea it was going to happen, but now it's happening. Uh, and so there's a scramble. And then in the course of a couple hours, it, it, um, you know, we, the information trickles out a little bit and, and, and there are a couple of progressive priorities for ENC and for energy and commerce. One of which is AOC, obviously. The other one was Sylvia Garcia, who's from Texas, who is not AOC, who's you know not the kind of avowed socialist, uh, but is a progressive, would be an ally on the committee. Um, and you know, long story short, when the dust settles, um, the the party basically, particularly the centrist wing, and this is Hakeem Jeffries, this is people who have their eyes on leadership positions in the future. They're very much on the right side of the spectrum. And, and I think you could argue that Jeffries is, um, is to the right of Pelosi or would be as, as a, as a, as a speaker or a leader, um, basically says we're not, we, we refuse to give AOC the seat, uh, without putting it to a vote, which is not usually how that happens in, in, in these committees. They usually just say, well, this one person has the backing of the delegation and she's in. 
So they put it to a vote and, and AOC gets blown out in the vote. I mean, she, she loses 46 to 13. And so you basically have out of nowhere, this, this, uh, this, this group of, of Democrats basically mutinies AOC and, and, and forces her out of the seat. And then a few minutes later, Sylvia Garcia comes up and they don't even put her to a vote. They just say, actually, we're going to go with the other person, Lizzie Fletcher, who, you know, was, was, a, was an enemy of the AFL-CIO in Texas. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then that's it. I mean, and then, and then it's all over. So AOC doesn't get this seat. Uh, Sylvia Garcia doesn't get her seat. They lose on, you know, uh, procedural processes that are totally different from the same position. And, uh, and you know, progressives are standing by shocked that this, this could have happened. And it all went down in a couple of hours. Jesus, it's like the, it's like the. Uh, <laughs> pardon me, I, I apologize for this one in advance, you guys. It's like the uh, you know the uh, Democratic Party version of the Red Wedding, for fuck's sake. I mean, this, this that's a bloodbath. I mean, <laughs> apologies to the, uh, the 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 two people out there who still haven't watched the Game of Thrones. This is a bloodbath. Where where is this coming from? Where is the impulse coming from? You you definitely uh, have some some pretty. I was going to say speculations. It seems pretty obvious, but why 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 now? Why this? Yeah, well, it's it's what's interesting is that the person who seems to be or seems to have been behind this, the driving force behind it, was Henry Cuellar, who's a representative from Texas, uh, is the most, you know routinely considered the most conservative member of the Democratic caucus. You know, votes vote, was voting with Trump. You know, re- re- reliably, he's campaigned for Republicans. He's raised money for Republicans. He's anti-choice. He's a favorite of the NRA. You know, th- this rap sheet is a mile long, and he got up and basically said that he could not support someone like AOC who doesn't support members in their primary challenger in their primary challenges. And so AOC, obviously, you know, famously backed a primary challenge to Cuellar in this cycle, um, which was Jessica Cisneros, who was a 26 year old, 27 year old lawyer and and progressive. And, um, and she lost narrowly. And obviously Cuellar did not forget that AOC uh, backed his, his opponent and he made that vocally and, and explicitly clear in this meeting that that was the basis for him opposing her to the seat. It wasn't that she wasn't fit for the seat. It wasn't that she didn't have experience on things pertaining to energy and commerce. It was that she had not reliably backed the members in their primary contests. And, uh, and, and that was basically all it took to turn, you know, basically turn the vote against her. And, 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 and obviously the votes lined up in, in uh in in accordance with what what Cuellar wanted and and so yeah. you know it was it was you know it's a classic it's a classic tale of revenge in some sense yeah i mean this is uh i mean there there are a couple things wrong with this right the the first one is just well th- several things the first one's just it's just petty Cuellar. You're, you're a little petty there buddy uh this the, the mo- more <laughs> substantive thing is that uh you know we're putting um individuals uh, over party, right? And of course, the Democratic Party is this very unwieldy kind of uh, Swiss cheese-like uh, formation, according to uh, one of the experts, uh, <laughs> an historian and uh, political scientist that brought on likes to refer to the party as. Um, it's a you know opportunistic kind of uh, uh, election-based coalition, but inside inside of Congress, it's far more concrete. Um, but uh, clearly, here we're not looking at the will of any party base; we're looking at the divine right of specific elected officials inside the party to maintain their power, their grip on power, regardless of what people across the country and their constituents have to say about it. It's a very bizarre way of framing uh, representative democracy and and, uh, electoral power. The second thing that's wrong with it, of course, is that it's utterly hypocritical. (laughs) 
talk to us about uh, some of the other primary challenge endorsements across the the, the country that uh, would uh, you know give lie to that claim that you know all members should always support each other rather than uh, primary challengers. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the, the most famous example of this is when when uh, when Joe Kennedy tried to, to primary Ed Markey for that Senate seat in Massachusetts. And and Nancy Pelosi, who had said you know repeatedly that she would not support primary challenges to members uh, who are in the, you know who are in those seats, came out and supported Kennedy against Markey, who was very much you know a, a, a sitting member of the party. I mean, you know, in the club, and uh, and yeah, and she didn't just not say any. She didn't just not condemn that that uh, that attempt. She actively endorsed Kennedy in in that uh, campaign. And so there's obviously there's no consistency here. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's both, there's both an ideological component in that, you know, obviously these people are part of a very particular ideological orientation, but it's also, it's also just about, you know, them supporting their friends. And, uh, right. and I think that's a big part of, of the way the democratic party operates, which is, which is, you know, is terrible, but it's just a fact. And, and, and that, uh, you know, like if, if, uh, if you cross one of their friends that, that that's, that's unacceptable. And, and, uh, and that is a big part of the dynamic here. And, and uh, obviously, AOC crossed Cuellar, uh, and you know she shot at him and, and and missed. And and now you know now now here comes the payback. Yeah, uh, you know Cuellar playing the role of Regina George in this case. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, don't don't cross her. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a little bit about um, you know how this does or does not resonate with or against or whatever convolutes the narrative around the inescapable debate uh, sort of uh, cucked up by, you know, uh, Jimmy Dore, shock jock that he is, uh, you know, arguing that progressives ought to, um, you know, ought to withhold their vote for Pelosi or make certain demands, in this case, a demand to raise a floor vote for Medicare for all, um, or else, of course, they would not, uh, they would withhold their vote. Um, in essence, essentially, um, <laughs> producing a, a, a very odd uh, circumstance wherein the Democrats have the numerical advantage, but there's a Republican Speaker of the House. Uh, they seem willing to kind of burn it all down at this point in time for the next two years. Um, I'm going to be having uh, Eric Levitz on, uh, your journalist, a colleague at the uh, in New York Magazine. Uh, he's written a really excellent piece on this, so we don't have to go into super detail and super depth. This won't be the last word on DPS about this, but I do want to contextualize this intra-party struggle with some of the prescriptions that are emerging from internet-based sectors of the left. Um, what's your take on all of this? Yeah, I think, I mean, I obviously don't think that that, that is the correct way of doing things. I, I think that um, even though AOC was denied this seat, I think that the strategy of, of getting powerful seats on money committees is just a sound strategy. I mean, you have to try to do it. It would be insane not to try to do it. So, mm -hmm. you know, in, in this position, uh, you know, Democrats got kind of wiped out in the House uh, in in 2020, and and their majority is very very narrow. But but progressives didn't lose any seats. I mean, you know, they actually added uh, to their ranks, and so they're more powerful than ever. Uh, and they are in a position to make certain demands. Um, but you want to make demands that actually become hard power. You want to make demands that actually turn into something. And so putting putting your allies on on money committees that. That is that. That's 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 the example of that, and that's why that's part of the progressive strategy going forward, or why it was part of the strategy at this point in time. Is that 
you can you can make a difference from those seats. There's a reason people want those seats in the first place, and and you it, that makes a lot of sense to to call for a Medicare for all floor vote. I the, what's the next step of that? What's the what's the third step of that? Okay, well, yeah, you could I guess you could sabotage Pelosi and end up with a Republican speaker, but 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 then it's like okay, but then what? And you know, I, I just think that that. So much of the debate over what progressives should or shouldn't do has been fought on these ideological terms like, you know, how do we how do we message? How do we talk about these things? How do we appeal to voters on those grounds? And I think that's all been good. But there's a, a, a part of this, which is that you actually have to wield real political power. And inside the halls of Congress, if you want to use, you know, if you want to pursue an electoral strategy and to, 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 to blow that up before it's even started, I mean, you know, th- this strategy is only like a couple of days old. Like we, we haven't really even seen the strategy road tested yet um, is I think makes no sense. And, and I'm sure Eric will get into that too. And, um, but yeah, the, the, like the way that these similar factions, the Republican party, like the freedom caucus or anything like that, the way that they've been successful is by getting those positions, by changing the orientation of the steering committee, by, you know, making these kind of structural changes that, that allowed them to grab hard power and hold on to it. And, um, yeah, having a floor vote where like most Democrat d- Democrats vote against Medicare for all. And, th- and then you're going to primary every single one of them. I mean, it, you know, that you just can't, there have to be other pressure points that you can use other than the primary challenge. And, and I think that, you know, uh, I think that there are progressives in Congress who are doing that and they should continue to do that. <laughs> one of the most, you know, um, concerning things or curious things about this demand to, uh, force a floor vote is, uh, the fact that people seem to be surprised that politics are happening inside of the Democratic Party, <laughs> right? And this is uh, this is an insight that I gleaned from kind of uh, party shakeups over in the, the UK Labour Party, which is you know being an, an Anglophone sort of society and country is something that I follow quite uh, closely. Uh, perhaps maybe people can you know uh, uh, bash me for being a whatever Anglo uh, imperialist. I don't whatever. I I, I like the the, the British uh, Labour. Party, I like the the political system. It fascinates me, so I follow it closely on my show. And one of the things that some commentators have said in the wake of some of the allegations against Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbynite wing of the party uh, coming from the center right inside that party is that people say, like, you know, are you surprised that there um, are politics happening <laughs> inside the British Labour Party? <laughs> this that's what that's the game, right? That's the game. That's what this is. And there will be backdoor meetings. There will be sort of. Um, negotiations and maneuvers. I mean, all of these things that characterize what we understand as politics. Now, that's not to write it off or excuse uh, the duplicitous or hypocritical or or, uh, just otherwise nasty behavior. Uh, But, you know, the, the, the most astonishing thing to me is that some of these people you know, let's be honest, mostly on Twitter. Okay. They seem so appalled at, at what's happening or not happening behind closed doors. They seem shocked and appalled and amazed that, that there's politics happening inside the party. Now you're a reporter and you, you have your sources and you know, some of these things you can reveal, some you can't, but talk to us a little bit about those politics that are happening when AOC, you know, perhaps foolishly gets on Twitter and, and, and says the essence of something, says something to the sense of, of, of trust me, I got this, right? Which, of course, is going to be uh, met with immediate suspicion. <laughs> um, you know, what is going on, perhaps, behind closed doors? What has been going on behind closed doors? I'm honestly heartened 
by the increasing amount of uh, interfacing that I'm seeing from members of the squad with the kind of the activist and journalistic progressive left. You know, I I just saw a, a, an amazing exchange between uh, Representative Ilhan Omar with uh, journalist Aaron Mate, where she kind of clapped him up and said, uh, you know, I, I, I like Aaron. I think he's a good guy, whatever. So just get that out of the way. But I think he was being very unfair about some of her foreign policy. And she kind of clapped him up and... and Aaron Mate and, and Ilhan Omar having this Twitter exchange that turned out to be actually quite productive and revelatory about where she really stands and what her principles really are. And I think that, that the progressive movement will definitely benefit from those continued exchanges. You saw AOC talking to Jeremy Scahill again on Intercepted Pod, uh, Podcast. So, you know, uh, break, that, break down the walls for us. What's happening to, to your understanding uh, behind these closed doors? Well, yeah, there, there, there are a couple of things I think it's important to, to, to point out and to your kind of the earlier part of your, que- your, your question that obviously progressives are not the only ones who are allowed to strategize. Like, they're not the only ones who are making strategies and like, you know, uh, and, and like, you know, planning for the future and coming up with, with ways to, to gain more power. It's not, you know, it's like the moderating of the party isn't just like this inert faction that just, that just sits there while the progressives think about various ways to carve it up. Uh, they're coming up with strategy too, and and sometimes their strategy works better. I mean, that that is that's the game. But, sometimes you get beat. I think that's one thing that we need to sort of understand. Sometimes you lose. You know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's like just because you lose one doesn't mean you should quit playing. Like it, there mm-hmm. actually is 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 a reason to keep playing this game. And yeah, with with in terms of where progressives are um, in 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 their own organizing with with behind closed doors, and I think that they're. Well, there have been a number of changes that have been made so far that I think are pretty promising. So for one thing, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, which to this, you know, to this point in time uh, has been basically the lowest, has the lowest barrier to entry of almost any caucus. I mean, you you could literally pay $4,000 to be in it and you were in it. Mm -hmm. And so it didn't have any power as as a voting block. It basically had no discipline whatsoever. And you had a bunch of, of effectively interlopers who could join it then say to their constituents, well, I'm a progressive, I'm in the caucus, and then go vote against all these progressive things. And so they were a progressive a- beard for Nancy Pelosi to wear so she could go in front of her progressive and le- lefty donors, you know, in California and, and claim credentials, you know, that, that uh, really weren't owed to her. Exactly. Yeah, and, and it's exactly. Yeah. It's, it's that sort of thing. So, so I, I mean, that was one of the first things that we saw progressives do in this, in this cycle already was to really to, to clean house in that sense. And so they they overhauled the CPC. They, they changed the structure of it such that they got rid of members who were not, who were clearly not progressives. And they set up, you know, they set up a, a policy agenda that's very explicit. They have rules for voting as a block. They have basically have set up, made up these structural changes such that they can now wield power as, as a unit. And, and that's a huge, that makes a huge difference. I mean, um, that's something that isn't obviously... Uh, isn't isn't like a, a a very sexy sort of development, but it is like a really important one for for wielding political power, which is what this is all about at the end of the day. And so those sorts of things I think are really important. And and because we have you know a, a new crop of progressives of, of, of freshmen coming in in 2021, um, despite the fact that some of those uh, those pretenders are out of the CPC, the the actual uh, enrollment in the CPC is at the same level because we had you know eight new members come in, and so. This is this is now a formidable and actual political constituency inside the Democratic Party. It's a caucus that actually can do things. And two years ago, a year ago, it wasn't. And and so that's something I think is really important. And then I think too, you're right to point out that that a lot of these 
uh, reps in the squad and, and every, everyone in the squad has, has their own sort of their style. And, and, you know, um, that I think probably makes a lot of sense, but, um, the way that they kind of are playing the inside game and playing the outside game, um, now I think is, is really interesting. And so they're, you know, talking to constituents who are, who are, you know, people who are already frustrated and trying to keep them in the fold, trying to keep them abreast of the strategy, but in a way that's not going to show all their cards, it's a difficult position to be in. But I think that, that, um, you know, if, if, if you're a person who thought the squad was legit and then now thinks the squad is not legit, uh, I think you're off the mark. I, I, I think that they're doing the things that need to be done. And, um, and I don't think we have any reason to believe that they've sold out or that they've, you know, they've turned their back on, on the progressive movement or these, or, you know, these, these big ticket, uh, policy ambitions. I, I, that, that to me, I, I haven't seen anything to believe that. Yeah. And along those lines, you know, again, like now, you know, whatever, I, I bring people on and I push them outside their comfort zone. That's the beauty of the long form interview, uh, Alex. <laughs> I bring on academics and I ask them to make, you know, policy prescriptions and uh, to break down election results. And I bring on journalists and I, I make uh, political strategists and activists out of them uh, against their will sometimes. So I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you some speculative questions out of the kind of type of questions that a lot of reporters, uh, uh, you know, cringe, uh, but you, you sound like you're up for it. So let's do it. You know, um, on those terms, you know, um, some of the things that, you know, the, the points that have landed, I would say, made by the Jimmy Dore types over the past couple of weeks are, uh, you know, the points where, you know, they'll flat out just, you know, play a video clip of Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, who, you know, the candidate at the time who says, uh, I'm willing to be a one term congressperson to do the right thing, uh, saying things like I want, you know, I, you better hold me accountable. To every everything that I've said on the campaign trail, which is a risky thing to be to ask to for someone to hold you accountable for everything that you've ever said on record, and it, it's clear to me that there has been some development, some maturation from the squad where they're making this leap from activist to elected representative to politician, and it strikes me that this is a this is a a growing pain that the progressive left is going through right now to really conceptualize for itself and think seriously from a strategic kind of standpoint, right? From a heterodox strategic standpoint, like what is the role of the activist and the party base? What is the role of, of an elected leader, a, a politician inside a party that's, that's fractured, inside a party where different elements are vying for power? And we're seeing that really play out in real time. And sometimes it's really painful. And sometimes it's rage inducing on my part because I mean, sure. Would I like to see AOC make every every proclamation from her Twitter account and and, uh, and scream all of the radical slogans? Like, sure. But uh, if she's not in power two, four, six, twelve years from now to enact these policies and and, and form the backbone of a, a really meaningful progressive and left block in this country, then then it was all for nothing. So, what what is your take? It sounds like you've kind of been, you know, ruminating on this as I have. What's your take on this distinction and the kind of needs to make distinctions between activists on the one hand and politicians? And then, what's that game that the politicians need to play? It's it's a great question, and it's a question that's different now under a Democratic president than it was two years ago. And I think that's part of part of what we're seeing is is the problem is, you know, when when Democrats control the House, but they control the Senate, and they don't control the see as they had as the past few years have been, it's a lot easier, I think, to do all outside game and say all, you know, to, to really go for the activist approach, to be doing messaging all outside, to be, you know, to, to be engaged in that kind of in more in the streets, because that's really the only opportunity that exists at, at that point. 
And, and I think that they protest were, politics in essence. I mean, it, the left is great at that. That's what we do. Right. right. In essence. Right. 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 And that's right. And, th- and that's, and, and that really is the old, that was really the only, only game in town for the last little while. I mean, even though Democrats controlled the house, uh, Nancy Pelosi really was the only person who was doing anything in the house. I mean, she, you know, she rules it with, with an iron fist. And, and so, mm-hmm. and on top of that, you had, you know, a, a hostile Senate and a, and a Republican president. I mean, the opportunity for legislation is, is basically zero. And so in that circumstance, it makes a lot more sense to be to be an activist, to to, to be embracing all these social movement things and 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 spending all your energy on that. And I think that, you know, that those squad members have, have done a good job of that in the last little while. I think the reason that we're seeing now some sort of frustration or or what I think you rightfully identify as growing pains is that, well, now with a Democratic president, there actually is some opportunity to do Legis- maybe not legislation, maybe legislation is still off the table, but you can do some things inside these, these, uh, these bodies. And, and, and so now it's not all outside game. Now it's, it's inside game too. And that's a different game. And, and I think, you know, for some people that looks like them pulling punches for me, I think they're trying to figure out, well, how can we win actual stuff inside here rather than being, you know, being on top of messaging, being, you know, an ally of, of social movements and, and, and that's a difficult balance to strike. I don't have the answer to that, but I think that that's kind of what we're seeing is, is that um, they're going to get be in a position where they can actually get some stuff. They're actually going to be able to win some stuff and they weren't able to do that before. And so that might look less appetizing to people who follow this closely, who are on the internet all the time, um, um, you know, participating in, in this in various ways. Um, but how you balance that inside and outside game is going to be a big part of, 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 you know, this next two-year period, and everyone I think does it differently. I think AOC does it differently than Ilhan. Um, it, it, but yeah, that is the question. I think they're all kind of figuring that out to some degree. Is you know, is I mean, is there really opportunity? Is Biden going to freeze them out? It, the, you know, the, it could be. It could be that as well. I mean, that's what happened under Obama. They, uh, you know, activists were given no quarter whatsoever, and uh, and so. You know, I think they're trying to they're trying to feel that out. I think, I, and I and I don't think anything is set in stone. I think Biden is probably more amenable to that than Obama was in two thousand eight. Um, he by no means is an activist himself, so you know the opportunities that are there are going to be limited, but they exist. And and I think they're trying to figure out how best to to maximize them. Right. If nothing else, I mean, you mentioned this is all this all plays into the um, the. Uh, congealing of progressive forces inside the, uh, the, the CPC, right? The Congressional uh, Progressive Caucus. Um, it seems like after a couple of years, uh, two to four years inside the party or longer for those like Ro Khanna and Pramila Jayapal, uh, you know, they recognize the limitations of going at this alone, going at this as a, as a sort of lone ranger on Twitter. And they recognize the, the not only advantages, but the, the necessity of, of going about this as a block, or i.e., as we've been talking, doing politics the way that the other factions inside the party do. And, and uh, they're now sort of um, relying on, um, you know, collective maneuvers uh, as, as a party block. We're trying to build up the, the opportunity for collective maneuvers inside the party, which is different. It's going to look different. It's going to feel different, right? We're not going to get the same, uh, you know, uh, uh, Twitter outbursts or the same slogans even perhaps or what have you. But, uh, but, but um it's maturation and um, you know, it's something that we need to be patient with. You've written a couple pieces about Pelosi as well. Let's finish up with, 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 with this. Let's talk more practical or just kind of going forward then. 
you know, maybe I can bring some of the uh, the Jimmy Tor door types uh, on side if they are still listening. Um, they tend to be quite heated about this, and many of them have probably turned it off in frustration by now. But if they haven't, <laughs> uh, let's try to win them over. Uh, Pelosi, as you have written uh, about a lot, it's, it's, it has to go. She has, in essence, been um, a, a one-woman um, battering ram uh, with the, the CARES Act legislation and other attempts to to get some relief to people across the country. There's virtually no representation across the party. It's basically the Pelosi show. Um, she's got to go. Tell us about that Pelosi show and, and how it is that uh, we might finally rid ourselves of this uh, autocracy. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's an interesting development, but but that's kind of, you know, especially over the last year, you know, she, she's, she, she just calls the shots. I mean, she negotiates the bills, you know, she gets in the room with, with Steve Mnuchin or whoever it is, and then produces a bill, uh, and then, you know, gives her members a few hours to, to, to vote on it. I mean, you know, that they, I mean, that makes it sound generous. They, they don't even get to read the bill. I mean, that's, you know, it doesn't even matter what's in the bill. They don't have time to read it. It's, it's, well, we saw you know, yesterday the, this, the second biggest, you know, uh, legislation, latest legislative appropriation in congressional history was what they got. What did they ultimately get? Like two hours to read? It was allegedly because of some kind of internet glitch. They couldn't, bunch of like uh, octogenarians trying to figure out the interwebs. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, this is, a, this is a classic maneuver, isn't it? Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and and it's not right. So that happened. There was a there was a there was a, a government funding bill a couple of months ago that went through that was the same thing. They never no, I mean no one had time to read it. Uh it was standing with the CARES Act. Uh so Pelosi's just doing doing it all herself, right? She's consolidated power to the level that, that the other members of Congress or at least the other members of the Democratic Caucus really don't matter. They just show up, they're just a warm body to show up and vote on the party line. Um and that is a trend that's kind of you know emerged over time. But it is really historically unique. Like her, her, her total control over the chamber right now is something that we haven't really seen before at any point in time. So, I, so, so in that sense, there's very little opportunity to do much of anything. But on the flip side, she obviously is 80. She has pledged to serve no more than one term as speaker. Her closest allies are also in their 80s. That Jim Clyburn and Steny Hoyer are, are also octogenarians. And and I think that at a certain point, and again, this is not something people are going to like to hear, but it's almost in the best interest of, of, of progressives right now for Pelosi to be speaker again, just for this one more term. And I know that's, mm-hmm. that's anathema to many. And I, I, it, it doesn't make me happy to say it either, but realistically the leadership group of the democratic party is all in its eighties. It's all on the way out. I mean, it's, it's, it should be long gone by now, but even they know that they can't hold on much longer. Um, and so I think progressives, at least inside the party know that there's an opportunity here and it's coming soon. The problem is if you try to uh, dispatch Pelosi right now and you end up with someone like Hakeem Jeffries, the speaker, well, he's going to be in that position for, for years and years and years, and he will be very difficult to dislodge. And so, you know, so, so, so the age, the, the incredible age of, of the Democratic Party in, at, these top, uh, at these top levels is both a curse insofar as, you know, there's really no room for young members to do anything or even to move up. Uh, but it's also a blessing insofar as that, you know, they're on their way out. They're going to be washed out at a certain point. And that certain, and at that point is, is coming, coming soon here. And, and um, yeah, the, the kind of final stage of it is very funny that we have, you know, Pelosi in this historically empowered position could just controlling the entire chamber, but that won't last. And I think that, um, you know, that is important to, 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 to remember in, in some sense, uh, even if it is insanely frustrating uh, <laughs> as it's, as it's right. developed. One day she will, uh, to the horror of us all, take that uh, 
neckerchief off <laughs> and uh, her head will, will roll across the floor. That's how that works. I've read the stories. You take that hanky off the neck and the head pops off. So until that day, <laughs> uh, we will suffer under her reign. But I mean, no, but I mean, you know, I've raised this point with other, other guests and this is something that, that, uh, being a serious political actor, right? A set of serious political actors, this collectivity, this progressive and left that we're building requires is, is a medium to long view. And uh, sometimes that means not burning it down, right? Not taking our ball and going home, not risking it all for kind of a mediocre tactical <laughs> uh, loss, but, uh, but looking at the medium to long term and the medium to long term is up in the air. I'm not going to say it's super promising, uh, but uh, there is going to be something of a vacuum of power, um, at least in terms of the the figureheads inside the party. Not the vacuum of power in terms of the donor base. We know who they are. Where they're strong, they're strong as ever. <laughs> but but the the ability of the donor base uh, to immediately, you know, manipulate uh, the party machinations is. I mean, parties and or institutions have to be mediated by uh, individuals, and there are these amazing moments in history where um, you know the kind of structural you know, stranglehold held by forms of structural power are no longer to wield or no longer able to wield that power uh, because they, they don't control the individuals. And I mean, on the one hand, you know, you, you go too far, you can have what philosophers call a voluntarist understanding of history, which is the idea that individuals can do anything they want whenever they want. And the only reason things don't get done in the world is because people don't want it badly enough. <laughs> if people only tried harder or wanted it more, then, you know, things would change. And it's like, well, not that easy. Uh, the other thing is to say that, well, you can't do anything and throw up your hands because, well, that the powers that be are, you know, so um, there's a middle ground. And the middle ground is to look for those opportunities and look for those rifts and those those realignment moments. And we're on the cusp of one. <laughs> I mean, that's that seems undeniable. So any any closing thoughts in, in those directions? Yeah, I think just that that, you know, obviously the Democratic Party is a, is a is a formidable foe in a lot of ways. I mean, obviously this bat this battle inside of it has proven that you know I mean the fact that Joe Biden you know emerged from that from that that primary cycle as as the candidate shows you that, that it's a it's a robust organization in some sense, and it's you know and it's you're not going to beat it every time every time you take it on you're not going to win. I mean you're not going to get a hundred percent victory rate. But the other thing is that there are, it's very weak in certain areas, and and sometimes the gatekeepers are extremely inept. And I mean, we've seen this with like, you know, uh, you know, Sherry Bustos running the DCCC and Robbie Mook running the House Majority Pack. I mean, these people pop up again and again, and they're extremely incompetent. And then, and then, and they lose all the time. And so it's they like, fail up. yeah. And, and so that in some sense is an asset that, that, you know, they, their commitment to, to protecting their friends and stuff has meant that they have, have, you know, have left some areas very weak and very vulnerable. And there are places where progressives, you know, just, just by dint of being more competent can, can triumph. And I think, um, those opportunities are, 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 you know, important to, to keep an eye on and to take advantage of. And, um, and, you know, it's, it's, I think that's for me, at least, you know, going ever having gone through this whole cycle, the question of whether or not the democratic party is this, you know, formidable and, and almost unbeatable entity, or if it's this incredibly frail and pathetic sort of, uh, country club of, of like a bunch of friends who are just like looking out for each other. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, one day it looks like one thing, one day it looks like another, but I think it's obviously both. And, and, um, and because of that, I think there will be opportunity. And I think, you know, to, to fold it back to what we were saying earlier, that a lot of that opportunity begins with 
getting on, you know, you have to get a firm grasp on, on committee seats on places that, you know, where money happens, where rules are being written. I mean, you know, that's, you just got to make the playing field favorable. And I think that's what, you know, you're seeing progressives try to try to do right now. And and that's an important part of a winning strategy that, you know, lasts for more than uh, just a couple of years. Right. Yeah. I mean, the the leftists are notoriously good at protesting. We're notoriously good at, uh, I don't know, Twitter. (laughs) Uh, We're more charitably notoriously good at knocking on doors and trying to get insurgent candidates elected. Uh, But we need to get better at being uh, abreast of some of the things going on behind closed doors in in the halls of power where where things actually get enacted or not. And um, that doesn't mean dissolving ourselves inside of the kind of power structures. It doesn't mean becoming co-opted by powers, the powers that be, but it does mean that we need to interface with these institutions. And I can't believe that I have to make this argument, but I am optimistic, Alex, because on this very show in 2015, 2016, I had to desperately try to make the op- the the uh, the passion plea to the left that, hey, state power matters, you guys. And I think I think the left is on board with that now. Not the progressives have always known. You guys are, I say you guys, I don't know. I don't want to make any presumptions, but the prospect and therefore are ahead of the curve there. The far left hasn't always been so sure about that. Uh, but now we believe that state power is important and they all sort of, you know, um, got behind Bernie Sanders and, under, and understood the the historic nature of, of that kind of, those kinds of movements, whether you are on the camp of, of, of Bernie Sanders or Warren or whoever, AOC or whoever else. But now we need to take another step and get serious about policy and get serious about these kind of things that go on behind closed doors that really determine what's going to play out over the next two to 20 years. So you're doing some really important reporting there. Uh, Alex Salmon, staff writer at the American Prospect, uh, come back on real soon and uh, give us an update on all of these shenanigans happening behind closed doors. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks again to Alex Salmon for enlightening us about these closed door dealings that he reports on on the daily for the American Prospect. You can check his work out over at prospect.org along with his his boss, uh, David Dayton, uh, who has been on the show multiple times. Good progressives over there. Um, you know, hey, that Warren Sanders battle, that thing's over. Uh, we got to join arm in arm with progressives in the coming four years and figure out how to build a, a big united front um, to put our politics, our policies on the agenda. Doesn't mean that we have to stop arguing with each other. Uh, doesn't mean we have to uh, cease the friendly debates between progressives and democratic socialists and, and between democratic socialists and democratic socialists. But, uh, but we do have to build something together for the next coming four years. And I am uh, glad to do it with them. As always, if you enjoy this program and you'd like to see it live long and prosper, head over to patreon.com slash deadpundits and become a subscriber today. I'm going to be working very hard to give you a lot more subscriber content in the coming year. Um, I know that that has been sort of inconsistent to say the least, but uh, we're going to be ramping that up back to its old state. We're getting the uh, we're getting the band back together. The band being, you know, semi-regular B-sides <laughs> to feed the pay pigs. Thanks so much for all of your support. Um, it really does mean a lot to me, and I hope everybody has or has had a good New Year and holiday season. We'll see you next time. <laughs>